Good morning, church. It's great to be with you. Um, if you're watching online and haven't connected with us yet, I would love for you just to hit that connect button uh, so that I can uh, get with you, maybe send you a gift from the church. The last couple of weeks, we've been in our series, and we've been talking about what it means to have vision. Last week, we began to actually unpack what our vision is here at Westside. If you remember, in its simplicity, in its simple form, it's just this, to know Jesus and to make him known. I hope you'll never forget that, because that's who we are as a church. But today, we want to continue that by looking at mission. And we want to begin to discover over the next several weeks what our mission is, not only as individuals, but most importantly, as a church. So with that said... Here's what I want to do today. I want to invite you to join me on an incredible adventure, a mission that everyone who claims Jesus as their Lord and Savior has been called to be a part of. You see, here's the cool thing. Once we surrender our life to Jesus, he will begin the process of transforming us. We will be renewed, we'll be cleansed, we will be set free, we'll be forgiven, and we will be adopted And then we will be sent out into a non-believing world to share this amazing gift that we have been given through Jesus Christ. And the cool thing is, we don't have to go alone. His spirit that is in us will go with us. Now, the hard part of this will be that there will be the possibility of rejection, the possibility of pain, I mean, we will love and we will work, and at times, our hearts will be broken. But again, the cool thing is, as we go, we will begin to find out what it really means to be alive, fully and completely alive in Jesus. And we will realize that we are now sharing in the greatest adventure on this planet. It's God's kingdom work. You see, God is called, and he has chosen every one of us for a purpose, for a mission. We were not meant to just take up space. We were created for something greater than just the status quo. You see, you and I have a mission. This church has a mission, one that God has called us to, and it's an adventure that is life-changing both for us but especially for those who are out there. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab your Bibles, and I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, because that's where we're going to park for the next few weeks as we continue in our series, Seeing the Unseen, Discovering Our Vision and Mission. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for what you are doing in the life of our church. I thank you for all you are doing in this place. So God, I pray that you will just help us today to begin to understand and to see what our mission is. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the hardest realities, I think, to come to terms with is that life is not a dress rehearsal. In other words, you get one shot at living this one and only life that you have on this planet. One shot at living every single day well and on mission. 
But unfortunately, what happens is that we get down the road and we look back only to see long stretches of our life that was lived as an adventure in missing the point. You ever done that? You ever went through life just missing the point? I mean, missing out especially on what Jesus says is the most important thing for us to live out in our life. Heard about a guy who he talked about when he was in college. He said he had rented a house and then had allowed some of his buddies, four or five of his buddies, to also rent rooms from him. He said he didn't keep it up like he should, but he one day was trying to just kind of straighten things up and clean things up. And as he was cleaning, he came across a paycheck that he didn't realize he had even lost or or. or hadn't even cashed yet. And so he thought, you know, this is kind of extra money because I didn't really realize it was there. So he goes, I think I'm going to cash this and then we're going to fix our little house up to make it more inviting for when we want to have people over. So he talked with his roommates and they all decided what they needed was a bunch of beanbag, beanbag chairs to sit around on the floor so people could hang out in. Again, this was years ago. This was back in probably the 70s or 80s. And um, so what he did was he said, he picked out two of the guys and said, I tell you what, I'm going to give you $150, and I just want you to go out and today buy all the beanbag chairs you can get for 150 bucks." So they took the 150 bucks, and about 10 o'clock that, that morning, they headed out to town. Now, they weren't back in an hour, and they weren't back in two hours. Literally, it was almost five hours before they came back. And when they came back, they didn't have any beanbag chairs. They had a ferret. Yeah, a ferret. Their job and their mission was to go get as many beanbag chairs as they could for 150 bucks, and they bring back a ferret. Now, to be real honest, the guy should have really realized what he was doing when he gave two college guys 150 bucks and what that would probably mean. But they missed the point, right? I mean, they missed the point. This story shows us that it's easy in the midst of the mission that we've been given to get distracted and we end up missing the point. Here's the thing. If life's not a dress rehearsal, if we only get one shot at living every single day well in living out what's most important, then we need to make sure that we get this stuff right. That we don't miss the point of what Jesus is trying to tell us as believers. Now here's why I say this. I believe that Jesus was the greatest and wisest teacher who ever lived. He was God in the flesh, he was the Messiah, and he was our Savior. And when people asked him what the most important thing in life was, he didn't beat around the bush. He just told them. The problem was most of them missed the point. And so when you and I read his word and we see or hear what Jesus says is the most important thing in life, I want to make sure that we don't miss the point like they did. I want to make sure that this is something that we become really good at, not only as individuals, but especially as a church. Here's the bottom line. 
It is not enough to know what the most important thing in life is. We have to learn how to live it out every single day of our lives. So that's why we are going to unpack this passage in Matthew chapter 22. Because it will help us to zero in on what Jesus says is the most important thing in life. That thing that becomes our mission as individuals and as a church. So as we begin, let me give you some background that will kind of help set the stage. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is nearing the end of his, of his earthly ministry. In chapter 21, after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers who were using the worship of God as a means by which they could make a profit. His actions didn't set well with a lot of the religious leaders. I mean, they didn't like it that he went in and just drove people away because (laughs) that's losing money, right? So as we come into chapter 22, you have a group of religious leaders who think that they know what the most important thing is, but who have also just totally missed the point. And so they come to Jesus to try to trap him and to try to test him with their questions because they hope if Jesus will just answer these questions wrong, it will put an end to all this nonsense that's going on with him. So in this chapter, on three different occasions, they try to get him to answer the wrong way. The first two were by the Sadducees, and Jesus just puts them in their place. Then it's the Pharisees' turn. And in Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, this is what we read. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now, You have to understand that for hundreds and hundreds of years, these religious leaders have totally missed the point because their idea of what was most important was simply this. It was keeping the commands. It was keeping the law. And so over the years, the religious leaders had put together roughly 613 commandments that governed the nation of Israel. And then the Pharisees had categorized them into 248 positive commands. In other words, the things they could do, and then 365 negative commands, the things they couldn't do. And then they were given to the people as a matter of obligation. But again, they were missing the point. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that there's more things they can't do than there is than they can do. And these so-called commands offered no hope, and they offered no grace, and they offered no mercy. They only offered the heavy chains of legalism that alienates rather than reconciles people back to God. And so because of that, there was this constant debate among the religious leaders over which was most important. In fact, they would just get together to debate the question. And it caused them to miss the real point of the scriptures. 
So instead of debating the issue, Jesus just gets right to the heart of the matter. And he basically says this. He says, if you really want to know what's most important, then here it is. And so in verses 37 and 38, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which to a Jew, that's a very famous passage. In fact, it was the central section in what is called the Shema, which in Hebrew means hear. This would be recited by faithful Jews at least twice a day, and it was supposed to be taught to the kids, as well as it was recited just before the moment of death. It was that important. Here's what Jesus says. This is what we read. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he he goes on in verse 39, and he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, and he says this, a second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. And then in verse 40, he just kind of wraps it all up very nicely with these words. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? I mean, do you hear it? He's saying that if you take all 613 commandments and you boil them down, you'll be left with these two. Love God and love people. He's going, you take all these things that you thought were important And you just bring them all together. This is what you have. Loving God and loving people. Because that's what's most important. And for us as Jesus followers and for us as the church, we cannot afford to miss this point either. These two things are the most important things to take to heart if we are going to live out the mission that Jesus has called us to. I mean, simply put, Our mission as individuals and as a church is the same. In fact, it's it's on our wall out in our lobby. It's love God and love people. And here's the thing. Our mission really is that simple. And as I thought about that, this is what hit me. Maybe that's the problem. I mean, maybe because of its simplicity, People tend to miss the point. I mean, after all, we think it can't be that simple. It can't be that easy. But it really is. And so, because it can't be that easy and that simple, we create our own laws and we create our own rules for what's most important. I mean, all you got to do is look around our city. I mean, within walking distance of this church, you will find at least two Methodist churches. You will find a Presbyterian church. You will find Baptist churches. And then you can go on down and you'll find another large Presbyterian church, a large Baptist church, a large charismatic church. Why? Because we all have in our minds what's most important. And we're not unified on the things that are the most important. 
So each church comes up with what they think is most important. And so you have this extreme over here where it's legalism. It's keeping the traditions. It's keeping the rituals. It's keeping the, the, the rules of the church. It's that legalistic side. Over this way, the far side, you have the emotional, the charismatic side, where it's all about how you feel and the emotions that you can create. And then everybody else is just kind of somewhere in the middle. And let me tell you, it causes us to miss the point. And when we live this way, we, pu- we push God's word to the side and we alienate the people around us as well as those who we are trying to reach for Jesus. And let me tell you, I think that breaks the very heart of God. Somebody said, and I really like this, the art of living is loving. You were created to love God and to love people. You see, our relationship with Jesus as well as the church is not about religion. It's not about keeping a bunch of rituals or rules. It's about a relationship, a relationship with God and with people, people within the church, people within our community, and people in this world. So with that said, here's what I want to do. I just want to spend a few moments unpacking this first part of what Jesus says is most important, which is loving God. Next week, we're going to look at the application of that before we move on to loving people. But look again in verses 37 and 38. Again, Jesus said, he replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Let me tell you, at the end of the day, we can't miss this point. We just can't. Why? Because our love for God is the chief barometer that defines us as a follower of Jesus. you get that? Our love for God is the chief barometer that defines us as followers. Now, there's something else here that I hope you don't miss, and it's this. It's how personal this verse, these verses are to us. Look what he said. He said, love the Lord your God. So here's what I want us to do. I want you, first of all, to underline that word love. Just underline that word love in your Bibles. It's the verb agapeo. comes from the noun agape. Now let me ask you, as you think about love, how do you define love? I mean, what, what does it mean to you when you say, I love you? What does that mean? Now, here's why I ask that, because there's two problems that I see when it comes to understanding not only God's love for us, but most importantly, understanding our love for him. First of all, sometimes the way we live and and sometimes the way we are treated or the dysfunction in our family or in our relationships, all these things can color our view of life and especially how we define love. And unfortunately, that definition will be the one we use when it comes to our love for God. And so our dysfunction, our relationships that have come and gone, all those things will define how we look at love, but they will also define how we love God. Now, the second problem I see is this. We basically have one word for love. 
and we use it for a lot of different things. I came across this this week. I thought it was, it was kind of crazy, and it's really interesting. In fact, I, I researched it just to make sure it was true. Did you know that Eskimos have a lot of different words to describe snow? Now, we say snow. If we look outside and there's white stuff coming down, we say, hey, man, it's snowing. But the Eskimos have, it said, almost up to 50 different words to, that describe snow. Now, it's crazy, isn't it? But the same thing is true for, for love, for us. You see, we have one word that describes love, but the Greek language was more defined. So they had at least four different words for love. And so when you would hear in Jesus' day someone say, I love you, the word they used would tell you just the kind of love that they had for you because it was more defined. But again, we just have one word for love. So we say, we love food. I mean, I love food, right? I love, I love sports. I love to play golf. I love to watch golf. Not everybody does. In fact, most people probably don't. But I love tennis. I can't play it anymore, or I haven't tried since my back surgeries, but I would love to. But I love to watch tennis on TV. I love football. I love sports. I love my house, but I also love my wife, and I love my kids. Now, let me tell you guys, if you love your wife the same way you you love food or you love sports, you're going to be in some deep doo-doo. Let me me just be real honest with you, right? You see, we we can't do that. Here's the thing. When you love food or sports or maybe your pets, you love them for what they give you what you get out of them. And unfortunately, that's the definition of love that some people have for God. They love him for what they can get out of him. Now, that's not the love the Bible is talking about in this passage. You see, most of the things our culture and our world loves are things that we get something from them. But the love that Jesus is talking about, the point that we can't, that can't be missed, is a love that gives so that others may have, not one that gets so that we just receive what we want. This is why life can be so unfulfilling for some people, because all their love relationships are based on what they want and what they get from them. And when they stop getting it, they stop loving And unfortunately, we do the same with our so-called love for God. We have to understand that Jesus is inviting us into a life that says, real love sacrifices. Real love is unconditional, and it puts God and others above self. So here's what I want to do for just a moment. I want you to watch this video clip with me. Because I I think it will help you to understand what this love looks like when it's lived out. So let's watch. Let me finish with this uh, story. We go to China from time to time, and and, uh, uh, we train leaders. 
And this time we brought up 22 leaders from the Hunan province and they rode 13 hours on a train to get to a hotel that they came up two by two in these elevators as, so as to not draw any attention. And then they got to a hotel room, a little apartment uh, room, it's only about 700 square feet in the little living room, no air conditioning, hardwood floor, 22 sat there. I came in and when you teach in China, you start at eight in the morning and you don't get done till five at night. You teach the whole day. They were sitting there, all 22 of them, and I looked around and I said, now, if we get caught, what will happen to me? They said, oh, you'll get deported in 24 hours and we'll go to prison for three years. I said, you're kidding. How many of you have been in prison for your faith? Out of 22, 18 raised their hands. I thought, no way. I looked at them and I said, you, you 22 people, how many people do you oversee? Because they were all of these small group leaders, underground church leaders in the Hunan province. I said, how many, if you counted up all the people under your jurisdiction, how many would it be? And they counted them up and they said, little over 20 million. I said, what? See, we forget there's 1.3 billion people in China. This is crazy. Well, I had 15 Bibles and I passed them out. Obviously, seven didn't get them. And I said, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 and we're going to read it. And just then, one lady handed hers to somebody next to her. And I thought, hmm, interesting. Well, we turned there anyway. And as we started reading it, I understood why she gave it away. She had memorized the whole thing. She just recited the whole chapter. When it was done, I went over to her at a break and I said, you, you, you recited the whole chapter. She says, oh, yes, I've memorized many chapters. I said, where did you memorize so many chapters? She said, in prison. <laughs> she said, you have much time in prison. <laughs> so I said, but don't they confiscate the Bible? And she said, yes. So people bring in scriptures written on pieces of paper, and they bring it in. So I said, but then if they find that piece of paper on you, won't they confiscate that? She said, oh, yes, that's why you memorize it as fast as you can. Because <laughs> even though they can take the paper away, they can't take what's hidden in your heart. I thought, wow. Well, after three days, you fall in love with these people. And when it was done, I, I said, how can I pray for you? I'm going to go back to America. And you guys have been just so wonderful. How can I pray for you? They said, you know, Wayne, you guys can gather like this whenever you want to in America. We can't. Could you pray that one day we'll be just like you? And I looked at him and I said, I will not do that. Big incredulous eyes looked at me and they said, why? <laughs> I said, because you guys rode a train for 13 hours to get here. In my country, if you've got to drive more than an hour, people don't come. You sat on a wooden floor for three days. In my country, if people have to sit more than 40 minutes, they leave. You sat not only here for three days on a hard wooden floor, but you did it without air conditioning. In my country, if it's not padded pews and air conditioning, people don't often come back. In my country, we have an average of two Bibles per family. We don't read any of them. You hardly have any Bibles, and you memorize them from pieces of paper. I will not pray that we become like, uh, you become like us, but I will pray 
that we become just like you. I mean, wasn't that awesome? I mean, wasn't that awesome? I mean, that's what loving God looks like. It's sacrificial, it's unconditional, and it's very humble. Now, I want you to underline two more awesome words. They're the words, your God. You see, you must never forget that he's your God. He's my God. And he's not just some abstract being we kind of meditate on and and kind of worship from afar. It's not like we're at an art gallery where we're looking at and then contemplating on a piece of art. It's not like that. I mean, it's very, very personal. Why? Because he says, love the Lord, your God. Your God. Now, if we had time this morning to go around this room, I think many of us could share a testimony of how God has saved you from a life of sin. And I say that for this reason, because when you think about your story, at that moment, when Jesus saved you, he was more than just the Savior of the world. At that moment, he was your Savior. You see, he was not just the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the Lamb of God who took away your sin. You see, it's very personal because if you had been the only one around, he would still have died for you. Now, let's reflect and we're going to close. I think we're a lot like the Pharisees, especially the the one who is the expert in the law in this story in Matthew 22. I think we wonder what following God is all about. I think we wonder what the most important thing really is. I think we wonder about what God wants from us and what we can get from him. But as we wonder, Jesus gives us the answer. And he says it's, it's very simple. It's just love. It's love. And the cool thing is, he doesn't just ask us for our love. Because he first gives us his love. He loves us with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul, with all of his strength. And he demonstrated that through sacrifice when he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. I love this verse out of Romans chapter 5 verse 8. It just says this. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He didn't say clean your act up. He didn't say get it all together. He didn't say you straighten your life up and then I will die for you. Then I will love you. No, he did it right in the middle of our sin. He died for us because that's the kind of sacrificial and unconditional love that he has. Let me tell you, God doesn't want your religiosity. He wants your love. It's what he expects from you. And it's what he has already given to you. The only question left is this. What will you do? What will you do? How will you love?
Now, next week, we're going to look at some application of this. And we're going to see just how we can begin to love him back and to love him the way that he has asked us to. So I'm excited for that. But I don't know where you're at today. I don't know. Man, I don't know what you've been struggling with this week or this month or this year, this crazy year. But I do know God wants to pour into you. And I do know God wants to to help you and to to love you. And all he wants back is, is just your love. And if you don't understand the love of God, you can go to our Next Steps page and you can watch the video on the love of God. And I think that will really help you to begin to get a handle on this. But if you've never accepted Jesus into your life, that's really the beginning point. It's just coming to him and saying, God, I'm a sinner, and I just need you to save me. And just give your life to him. If that's you, just hit that connect link. I would love to connect with you. I would love to talk with you about how you can give your life and your heart to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for all you do. God, I thank you for the love that you have given and the love that we have because of what you have demonstrated to us on the cross. God, just help us to understand the depth of that love so that we can love you and love others in return. It's in your name we pray. Amen.